Hello, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds comic podcast, episode 50. I'm Ryan, and I'm joined by another nerd, Rory. Yo! The ladies can't make it tonight. It's a Super Bros Awesome Beard edition of Four Color Nerds comic podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll do our best to power through with testosterone. Each week, we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now and go read your week's books. Then come on back. Each week, one of us picks their favorite book, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd. The pick was kind of hard this week. There were a lot of good ones. But in the end, this week, the pick of the week goes to Jessica Jones, number one. Uh, our companion song is Bad Reputation by Joan Jett, because Jessica Jones doesn't give a single fuck <laughs> what anyone else <laughs> thinks about her and think her attitude and demeanor fit that song perfectly. So let's take a listen. So, Jessica Jones, number one, from Marvel Comics, written by Brian Michael Bendis, art by Michael Gatos, colors by Matt Hollingsworth. The band's back together again. This is the same team from Alias, which is an amazing graphic novel came out a couple years ago, more than a couple years ago. I highly recommend going back and checking that out if you like Jessica Jones, because this feels almost exactly the same. There's a little more integration into the Marvel Universe, but not too much. They keep it really street level on this. And when she does interact with the Marvel Universe, it's usually to tell them that they're idiots and with their stupid bullshit that she doesn't have any time for it. So Jessica Jones is in prison and she's getting paroled and they do the thing where they give you back all your stuff and they have like the leather jacket and the boots and which I thought was a neat little scene. Jessica Jones gets all her shit back from prison, her leather jacket, her t-shirt, her Kate Spade boots, her sunglasses, kind of like her, I wouldn't call it a superhero outfit, but her badass bitch outfit. (laughs) So she gets paroled like to the top of the prison and she's waiting for like a boat to get here and the guards have fucked up either intentionally or not and like the boat won't be here for like 45 minutes. So it's just like, fuck this, and like jumps off the building down into like East River, I'm guessing, crawls her way out into New York and heads back to her detective agency. And that's when I got to the panel where they have the alias investigation services big sign. And it was like, oh, damn it, I'm home. Like, this is great. (laughs) Bendis was made to write this. He made this originally with alias and his words fit perfectly into her. This is his baby. He is doing a masterful job on this one. The art on this really helps with that kind of gritty street level feel for it. It doesn't look like comic book art. No, not at all. I loved it. Yeah, it's fantastic. So everyone is after her in this issue about where the child is, which I didn't read Power Man and Iron Fist, where I'm guessing this came from. So I I don't know what's going on with that. But people basically keep coming to her and asking her questions, and she wants nothing to do with it. Misty Knight shows up. She's like, well, if you don't answer my questions, I'm going to kick your ass. And then Jessica Jones does that thing where you catch the punch that someone's throwing at you and just, like, throws her through the door. She's like, oh, I didn't know you were that strong. (laughs) She's like, yeah, I am. (laughs) No one ever remembers. (laughs) She reminds me so much of Christina in this. Like... (laughs) 
they're kind of like foul-mouthed attitude. We always talk about Hannah from Rat Queens being a cursed spirit animal. I think she might have a new one here. <laughs> so she beats the shit out of Misty Knight that tells her, you're in my office, you're trespassing. I will kick the shit out of you the next time you show up again. She has like a message waiting for her that there's someone who has a job for her to do, which she's really happy to do because she wants to get her mind kind of off of her own personal stuff. And she's a really good investigator. So this would be kind of a way to distract herself. So you get some really bendacy dialogue here with like the panels and the back and forth dialogue between the people where this woman is saying her husband woke up a couple nights ago and started freaking out and crying that his wife isn't his wife, that he was married to another woman and they had a kid. At first, she was worried that he might be going insane, but then she did some internet research and found out about like multiverses and that sometimes superheroes will say they're from different dimensions and timelines and all that stuff. So she thinks maybe her husband, this could be it. And Jessica's like, well, have you just considered that he's crazy? <laughs> you know? <laughs> that could be it too. So then while she's talking to her there, she sees someone climbing up the side of the building, which I love this part. She sees Jessica Drew climbing up the side of the building, Spider-Woman. I love this where she leaps a building in a single bound. And she's like, left a tall building. That was hard. So she like crash lands on the top of the building. So Jessica Jones and Jessica Drew, some of my two favorite women in Marvel Comics, are talking to each other. <laughs> Jessica Drew is basically telling her, learn some craft, that she's a terrible spy, that the next time someone comes for them, she's going to do some really bad stuff to them. <laughs> It keeps going on with the investigations where she's staking everything out. And then you get probably, I think, one of the best end panels of a comic book in a while, where Jessica's staking this guy out and taking his picture, and then standing alongside her car is Luke Cage. With, like, his arms crossed, looking real pissed off, you know? Uh-huh. And that great line, where's our daughter? I was like, oh, shit. This one was great. If you like Alias, you will love this. If you've never read Alias and you liked this, you got something to go back and read. Both Jessica Jones and Luke Cage are really popular now with their TV series, which is probably why they're able to finally revive Alias which was not that popular when it came out because it's very different than most other superhero books. Writing, art, everything on it was out of the park. This was absolutely fantastic. The art style is definitely like what I love the most about it. It's like you said, it's not comic book art. It's very different and a very gritty, like detective noir feel to it. Yeah, like a true crime comic or something like that. Exactly. The thing that really stood out, it's a street level view of the Marvel Universe, but they're dropping it in in such like a real way. Like, you know, she's got the Dazzler t-shirt and then the conspiracy theory website with Galactus and Kamala Khan and Spider-Man running across the street in the background. Exactly. They're like running across the street and it's just, but she's not part of the main scene. It's just like, oh shit, this shit happens. I felt that it was really well crafted that way. The story was great. Awesome, hilarious dialogue the entire time. I couldn't support you more on this one. This, this was just great. In the end, I think I will give it four and a half alias investigations. I'm going to give it four and a half bitch cakes. <laughs> Learn some craft bitch cakes. <laughs> oh, so foul mouthed. I feel like Jessica Jones's office is just full of empty Jack Daniel bottles, like cigarette butts and like yeah. leather jackets. <laughs> oh, you unbelievable bitch. That was what it was. Oh, yeah. When she's talking to Misty, Misty yeah, Knight. You unbelievable oh. bitch. <laughs> that was great. It's pretty good. I yeah. like when you have characters that are in comic books who can just kind of shake their head at like all the comic book shit that's going on, that there are actual people who have real lives that are affected by all this craziness. You're taking us back in time and into the Appalachians. It's all about crime this week here, for me at least. So we've got Moonshine number one, Image Comics, written by Brian Azzarello. 
art by Eduardo Rizzo. So this one was a nice little startup. You've got G-Men that are trying to shut down this still operation that's going on. You know, somebody's out making moonshine out in the fucking woods. So they're out searching and they sneak up and they find this thing. All of a sudden they get jumped by what appears to be werewolfish. Looks like a werewolf to me too. <laughs> I mean, you can't really tell because there's some fur there and there's some growly eyes and there's a full moon. So it might just be like a coyote, but I doubt it. Well, I think that's lends to the title being a, a play, Moonshine, for both yes. the liquor and the werewolves. Yes, a double entendre, which I love. So then you have the main character who's he's sitting there and he's hung over from drinking the night before and he's gets a call from his boss who tells him that he wants to go find this operation. They're obviously mobsters and stuff like that, mafia members. He's talking about how he wants to go and get this guy's moonshine, he's talking about how you know, this is like the best quality stuff. And, you know, I want you to go and get him, you know, whether you make a deal with or whether he wants to or not, you know, you're going to get a deal from him, you know? Yeah. It's <laughs> and, like in the, like the Godfather, you're going to make him an offer. He can't refuse either his signature is exactly. going on the line or his brains are. Exactly. So he shows up in this little podunk town out in the Appalachians. And initially he tries hitting on some chick who gets all pissed off. He's flirting with her. He goes and he tries to find the character who's been making this moonshine he shows up at this house out in in the middle of buttfuck Egypt in the Appalachians and there's three guys standing there and he talks to him. He's looking for Hiram Holt and the guy's like, you know, what do you want with them? And he's like, well, I got a business deal with them and tells him, well, then you can tell me what, it, what it's all about. He tells him the whole offer and then the guy goes inside and then comes back out. It turns out that that was Hiram the entire time. He's playing like a dumb yokel just to kind of like get what he wanted, get the offer out on the table and then have time to think it over. Eventually what happens is he brings him in and there's, they kind of like talk about his operation. He's telling him how the numbers aren't adding up. He's making more already. They're trying to broker a deal for the mafia. It's be like a real valuable thing if they could get this on the table. So they're trying to broker a deal and then some of his cronies come in and tell him that they've got a real mess on their hands. And then they come in and they find the bodies of all the G-men. There's that part where the deformed cousin or brother, like the kind of person they would in like the 1910s and 20s where they keep chained up in the basement, like the family secret, yeah. comes like running out of the woods all covered in blood. Oh, I didn't realize that was blood. I wasn't really getting what was going on there. <laughs> I think that that's the werewolf. I Probably, think. now that you say it. To me, I don't know why, but it, to me it looked like he had burns or something like that. I was like, what? Is there like a still explosion or those like birthmarks? I couldn't tell that it was dried blood. But now that you say that, it makes a lot more sense. <laughs> I think when he sees that girl at the diner who's Hiram's daughter, I think she's had the shit kicked out of her by daddy like, for some reason. Because those look like bruises gotcha. on her. Oh yeah, that's true. Eh, you're catching things that I missed. Four eyes are better than two. That's true. Well, six, because you wear glasses. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <that is> true. <laughs> they go to his operation and you see all these just chewed up G-men and stuff like that. He tells him, he's like, you know, you're in the mountains and this is what happens if somebody wants to mess with my op. Go back and tell your city boss we don't want your deal. We don't like your kind around these parts. <laughs> his boss is the type that won't take no for an answer so he's sitting there trying to figure out what his next step is going to be. This one was another one. This part was kind of interesting but I didn't really get where they were going but I guess we'll find out in the next issue. You know, he then he's driving down the road and he hears some people singing and playing music and stuff walks up to this camp and there's a bunch of African-Americans people hanging out playing music and stuff like that. Obviously, it's set like 1929 or something like that. So they're pretty suspicious of a white man that's coming up to him all dressed up in a suit in the middle of the woods. A lot of side eyes and real yeah. caution at this guy. They're not happy yeah. he's there. They ask him if he wants anything and he says a drink for starters as he's checking out one of the chicks there. <laughs> yeah, they're giving each other the eyes. Yeah, that's for 
sure. So that's that one on a nutshell. I really like this one. Once again, great artwork. The story, we didn't get too far, but I think there's a lot going on here. As we were saying before, there's all kinds of double entendres mixed into this. I was pretty pleased with this one's got me excited. I like this one too. I felt like they introduced some things, but didn't really feel the need to explain what happened. Like you saw a couple panels of people getting murdered and the moon in the distance. And, you know, are these werewolves? Is this voodoo? What is this? I don't know, but I want to find out. This was a, a really good example of how to keep a comic simple and not overdo it told more of a story by telling less of a story. They set the table and I'm ready to to sit down and eat it. I think they did a real good job. I think they did a really good job of having the time and place matter. Why bother setting the story in 1929 Appalachia if it's not going to be relevant to the story? And it's very relevant, the time and place here. Absolutely. And yeah, it just really draws you in. It's got the feel of it completely. The coloring's really good on this too. Oh, amazing. During the daytime, they do, not monochromatic, but they really use their color palette to set the mood and the colors they use during day and night are different. In town and city are different. It's pretty good coloring. I think I'm going to give it four plates of gravy. Oh, I like that part with the little kid where yeah, the mobster's like, I want some pasta and gravy, which of course gravy for like Italians is like, yeah. you know, pasta sauce, what we would call it. Yeah. The little like hillbilly kid's like, is that like biscuits? <laughs> like, oh yes, 1929 when uh, Italian food is multicultural experience. You yeah, know? seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I will give it four lost wallets when he's so drunk that he can't find his wallet in the morning. Alrighty. We're going over to Vertigo for clean room number 12 from Vertigo Comics. The Damned Lay Dying, written by Gail Simone. Pencils and inks by John Davis Hunt. Colors by Quentin Winters. Man, this one was clean room in rare form here. When I was talking to other people about it, they said that usually clean room will give you one horrifying image. This one gives you several. (laughs) This one is basically... Astrid Mueller has got the fight back in her because she has someone to to go after. And that is what kind of motivates her. They mentioned that when they're like, you know, just a couple days ago, you were ready to to give up. And now, you know, you're raring to go. What's the difference? And she's like, well, now I have someone to go against. And that gives some people strength. So it kind of opens up with her back in Germany after she killed her father for being a demon alien thing with a snake face, talking to her therapist, who's asking her why does she think she's here and she says because my family thinks i killed my father but my father was dead a long time ago and then she tells the therapist that she thinks that hell is real that there are demons in the world and the therapist who seems like kind of like an older version of astrid really is like go on (laughs) you know like i think maybe she can also see these things and recognizes astrid also being able to do that that's the impression that i got from that scene anyway Yeah, it's definitely one of the possibilities that floated through my mind there. So then it kind of cuts back to the clean room with Spark being super evil (laughs) with his giant robot thing and continuing to, like, basically whoop the shit out of people. Chloe can also use the clean room just like Astrid can, and she goes into Spark's mind. You've seen Astrid destroy people in the clean room as well, and Chloe is doing this to Spark where it's an exorcism, and he's, like, begging her, like, please, I don't want to see this. This is really bad. Don't make me remember. Don't look at me, because I'm I'm not proud of what happened here. So this is, like, an amped-up version of the exorcism. So Spark is in this little girl doing all demon, like, you know, your mother sucks cock in hell, like, all that kind of stuff. Vomiting flies at people, 
just classic kind of possession stories where the priests are doing the exorcism and just another Saturday, you know, they like throw holy water on her and it like burns her face. And she's like crying for her mother to help her. And her mother like breaks free and runs over to her. Oh, and this is horrible. The mother runs up to the girl and is like hugging her like, it's going to be okay. And she's like, mommy, I just have one question for you. What does whore taste like? And then she like <laughs> rips her mother's throat out. Oh, that was, that was horrible. Best line ever. <laughs> yeah, there's some good ones in here. So Spark is feeling kind of remorse at this. He doesn't want them to see what he did. He actually feels really bad about it. And that's kind of where Chloe starts talking about that maybe hell and redemption and sin are real. Like she didn't believe in them anymore, but they kind of are. And this is where Spark, before he had the exorcism kind of forced on him. And here Chloe is trying to, rather than being exorcised, have him essentially repent of, of his evil ways. Because at the start of this, he had been reactivated into his evil demon form, and he's been brought to witness what he did, and he's ashamed of it. So she's trying to convince him to willingly turn away from evil. So I thought that was actually kind of interesting with Spark, that you get to see that although he is now more fully in control of his actions, but he can actually make a decision now about what he wants to be. Before, when they threw the evil out of him, he had no choice in that. Been basically brainwashed into not being what he was. It's like Professor X had went into his mind and cut away stuff. Now he has access to all of it, but he's able to reject it. And then you get Astrid talking to these water guys who are selling like health water, basically, and they're having their board meeting telling everyone to vote them into controlling the thing. Astrid fires the entire board, and then you find out that his assistant is actually one of these like clean room demons who rips the dude's head off, which mm -hmm. was pretty awesome. So, you know, they're talking shit to each other back and forth, and in the background you can see him changing into his demon form, comes up behind the guy and rips his head off. And then you just have this awesome little panel of her drinking her tea while it's happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Calm and composed. <laughs> totally. You know, and they're like, well, why did you, if you knew that these demon things, these alien demon things were controlling the other corporation, why didn't you reveal this beforehand? And she's like, well, knowing who your enemies are with them not knowing that you know is powerful. And if I had revealed them, then they would have just went somewhere else where I didn't know who they were or what they were doing. She it basically let them exist because she knew where her enemies were. So you kind of see her strategic, cold mind at work. So Killian's <laughs> bleeding out. He's had his arm cut off. And they're begging Spark to help her like she did before, where she went in and like grabbed the bullets from Astrid. So you don't see what actually happens, but they all come out, but Spark isn't there. And they're talking to the guy who had his hand cut off. And his hand's like back on his body, but it kind of looks like it's not put on exactly the right way. And he puts his hands over one of the guy's shoulders and he's like, thanks, thinky think, thank. <laughs> You're like, oh, just like Spark with his Chloe Klim Clam, you know. So clearly, to me anyway, Spark has possessed this guy and that's what's keeping him alive and yep. probably put his body back together because he can control flesh like that. So this one was, I thought, really interesting. Like it advanced the plot along a lot. You also get to see the whole thing with her brother going to kill her. They said that he has a son. She sends her team to go in and find the baby, and they're like, the baby's fine. There's nothing wrong with him. You know, your brother's just crazy. So she's like, well, show me the baby. So they, you know, use their iPhone to chat with her so she can see what's happening. And you see a truly horrifying image of this little baby in a crib with a total demon face. 
I don't know what Astrid is going to do about that, but that was disturbing. Absolutely. They hit us with so many disturbing images this time. <laughs> yeah, they did. They just really just dropped it on you. <laughs> this was almost my pick of the week. Really interesting bit of writing and characterization with Spark being confronted with the evil that he used to be and having to choose to, to turn away from that. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing about Clean Room. And every time it comes up, you know you're going to get something good. They haven't failed to date. Artwork's excellent. The plot line, just so much stuff happened in this one. There's a lot going on. It doesn't feel like it's overwhelming. It doesn't get the Black Panther effect. It's like there's right. too much. The mind that it takes to come up with this plot you know, is amazing. And then the art to back it. They have a lot of plot lines going on in here, just like you do. Black Panther is a really good example where Black Panther feels muddled. This is a laser focus on what's happening. Exactly. Like there's no wasted panels. It's very clear what's happening without over explaining anything. There are panels that tell their own story without having to say to explain that Spark is now possessing that guy. Exactly. I gave this four and a half monsters in the crib. Oh, I knew that, that one was going to get taken. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, I feel the same way. I felt it was excellent. Just a badass read. If you're not reading Clean Room, you need to drop whatever you're doing and read every fucking issue. And we say this pretty much every week. <laughs> every time that they have an issue that comes out, <laughs> you yeah. should be reading this. You can get them in trade. You can probably pick up the trades for about 10 bucks or so each one, and you will well spend your money. Like, I guarantee you, you will be amazed at Clean Room. And once you've read the trades or a single issue, you will read every single other one of them. Absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm going to give this four and a half. What does horror taste like? <laughs> Off to more true crime. Oh, yes. Like I said, this, we were elbow deep in the crime with me this week. So we've got Trigger Man number one, Titan Hard Case Crime, written by Walter Hill, art by Matz. Yeah, he's a French artist. Just one name. <laughs> oh, fancy. And then colors by Jeff. Also just one name. <laughs> like Cher or Prince or Madonna. Hard Case Crime is a new imprint from Titan. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess this is the first one in that line. So if you like true crime and you like this, keep your eyes peeled for more Hard Case Crime. Definitely enjoyed this one. The different covers, too, were fucking great. They remind me so much of the pulp books. Yes. So we start off in Trigger Man with the setting is Arizona 1932. So you see this car that's driving up and driving into this like it looks like your your stereotypical Wild West town. And so this car drives up and this guy gets out. He's well dressed. He's got a chauffeur that's driving around gassing him up. He comes in and he asks for whiskey and the, the bartender's like, hey, this is a dry estate. We don't serve that stuff anymore. And he hands him a 20 and, of course, gives him the whiskey. Now, uh, did you listen to this song at all, Ryan? The one that's playing on the jukebox? No. Oh, you should have. It's actually really good. I hadn't heard these guys before, but I had checked it out just for just for shits and gigs to see what it was all about. Play us out with it so everyone can hear it. Oh, that'd be great. Starts talking about this band, how he used to always play in Chicago and he had this like girlfriend singer and stuff like that. So he's talking about his life and then the bartender being a dick is like, Do you got a point or are you just giving us your life story? So he starts telling him, he goes, Well, you know, I'm I fix things, you know, I fix problems. When I'm done everything's better. Do you know what I'm talking about? And the guy's like, Nope. He starts pouring some whiskey and says, you know, I'll explain it more directly. And he whiskey starts overflowing onto the bar. So then he lights a cigarette up and throws it on. And he tells him, you know, he's looking for this particular guy. The guy's like, I've never seen him. And he goes, well, he's the owner of the bar. So <laughs> and I know he's back there. He calls him out and basically says, hey, man, you owe money. Well, I don't owe anybody any money. They basically draw down 
Very Western. Yes, very Western. The bar owner goes for his gun that's tucked in the back of his waistline. The main character pulls a Thompson and hoses them all down, or hoses both the bartender and the bar owner down. As he's walking out, this girl that was in there comes running up and asks, you're headed west, I'm headed west, can I catch a ride with you? She's leaning over, showing the goods. She hops in and rides along, and then they end up in this hotel, and she's in the bathroom naked, comes out. I'm kind of disappointed the girls aren't here because I was going to say, hey, here's another case. I brought girls to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's she's looking. She's she's got it all. Yep, pretty much. What else do you need? Full nudity and she's being very friendly to him. Yeah, that's definitely something I was not expecting. (laughs) Was full frontal. (laughs) Comes and sits down next to him and is trying to come on to him. He's not really giving her the time of day. She sees that he's got this watch with this girl's picture in it. She's asking who it is, and he's basically like, I don't worry about it. She's like, what are you doing thinking about your girl? Like, she gets pissed off because he doesn't come on. And then he, like, flashbacks in his memory to being in prison, in this prison. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the guards come in. They they drag him through the prison. They pull their Thompsons on this other guy, shoot him dead, and then they drag him out to basically the mortuary. And there's a box in there, a casket, and they tell him, get in it. He lays down on the coffin, and they drag this body in and throw it in the incinerator. And they tell him, in the eyes of the world, you're dead. And they're like, I don't know why anybody would go through all this trouble to spring a piece of shit like you. And then it ends right there. Oh, I love this one. Oh, man. If you like true crime... Yes. Well, I mean, not true, because this isn't actually a true story. But if you like that pulpy crime type of story, this has got it in spades. Yes. I was like... Walter Hill, that name sounds kind of familiar to me. So he's a director, producer. His list of movies that he's been involved in, I'll just list some of them. So he directed The Warriors. He was involved in the first Alien movie. 48 Hours was one of his movies. He did Red Heat. He did Geronimo. He did, what the fuck else, that uh, Bruce Willis movie, Last Man Standing. Oh, wow. And he said that everything he writes, doesn't matter where it's set or what time is, is a Western that the Western theme allows you to tell really interesting stories. And to me, I mean, this is a crime story set in like the 1920s, 1930s, but it feels like a Western. It really does. Totally. This was really good. I would have never read this because of the imprint that it's on. And I'm, I'm telling you, if you're listening and you like crime stories, like if you like criminal or those kind of books, you should check this out. And I would continue to read other things from this line. Top notch. The art was good. The writing was good. Absolutely. Very high quality. I really enjoyed this one. They definitely get those crazy Western faces on them. Very good at portraying moods and whatnot of what's going on. It's short and sweet. But it's good, and this is obviously just going to be a badass run. So it was one that I was pretty happy. I just happened to stumble on that moment where they're getting ready to draw down on each other in the bar. Like you could hear that music, Uh you know, the Clint Eastwood music from like the Spaghetti Westerns and like the sagebrush rolling by. (laughs) Like it was so thematic for that moment. They really nailed it. Uh, I guess don't bring a handgun to a machine gun fight. You know, (laughs) you'll lose. I'm going to give it four and a half coffin nails. I really enjoyed it. I think I will give it four whiskeys on fire. So I'm sending this back over to Marvel for some more evil. Doctor Strange number 12 for Marvel Comics. Blood in the Aether, chapter one. Written by Jason Aaron. Pencils by Chris Bacallo. Inks by Tim Townsend. Oh, there's a lot of people. Inks by Tim Townsend, Robert Friend, Al Vey, Victor Olazaba, and John Livesay. Colors by Antonio Fabella. 
At the end of the last one, we talked about how Doctor Strange's suffering and pain creature that he had locked in the basement was just like strolling away like, well, I think I'm going to go be evil now. <laughs> and you get to see what he's been up to. So he's drawn to, to suffering and, and pain. So he goes to a hospital. I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? Where else are you going to find more human misery and suffering than the like intensive care unit of a hospital? A uh, wedding chapel. True, true. <laughs> <laughs> so you get to see this demon being, I don't. I say demon, but I don't know if that's the right word for it. You get to see this creature just being evil as shit. Shit. Just torturing people, doing the thing with the blade to the eye. He's telling them that, you know, he doesn't enjoy immense pleasure but no joy that was a killer line yeah because he can't feel joy right because it's a feeling he's incapable of having so you've got this tentacle monster with this like kabuki mask head holding like blades to people's eyes and dr strange shows up and they start start battling and dr strange is like chewing some gum which reminded me totally of the line from scanners <laughs> he's like i'm here to you know, chew bubble gum and kick ass and i'm all out of bubble yeah. gum so you find out the bubble gum he's chewing is actually like magical like wintergreen gum that freezes things once you chew it so he uses that to fight him and the creature is like this is so sad you know you used to be a, a powerful magician who just with like a word or a gesture could have defeated me very easily and now you're reduced to toys like crackerjack toys of magic that you're using to fight me they have a brawl the pain, suffering thing goes on his way and basically tells Doctor Strange that this is all your fault. That everything that happens after this, that he created him. So Doctor Strange is, you know, showing he's actually a doctor because he's in the ICU and people just got really fucked up. So he's working there for a while, helping out. And then he tries to hail a taxi. And he's like, have you ever tried to hail a taxi holding a magical that was sword? That's the best line. Oh. <laughs> So he goes to the bar with no doors, and he's, you know, drinking a mixed drink out of a pineapple, and they're talking about when his arch nemesis showed up at the end of Last Days of Magic, you know, said that he's going to find Doctor Strange, and they're going to have it out. Talk about it, he's like a total loser. Like, every time Doctor Strange has fought him, he's won. So basically, why is Doctor Strange so concerned about this? Like, yeah, it's his arch nemesis, but he's kind of a loser. And Doctor Strange is like, well, people who have nothing left to lose are the most dangerous. He's like, I have beaten him every time, but that doesn't mean nobody got hurt. <laughs> Very dangerous. And he still has magic. Nobody else has magic. You find out why. Because he's made a deal with Demon, the Dread Dormammu, who has given him his power and like his instrument in the world. So he does this thing where he walks into this family's home. This is very much like if you've watched Jessica Jones with like Purple Man, where he uses his magic to control all the people and tells them all to leave, except he stops the wife. And he's like, you can stay. And you're like, oh, oh God, yeah. this... His mind control, disgusting pervert is going to do horrible things to her. But Dormammu is not having any of it. He's like, I didn't send you here to, like, enjoy the pleasures of the flesh. So he, like, burns the girl alive to get him back on track. That was a cool way he did it, too, was he burned her alive, but then he took control. Since he's all in flames and whatnot, he, like, literally manifests himself. In her, like, flaming corpse. Yeah, it's pretty fucked up. <laughs> so then he and Doctor Strange have their kind of their showdown where they're going to brawl. I love a line where there's like a character who's like walking by, like walking his dog. He's like, all these damn hipster druids. <laughs> nice little break from, you know, all the tension you've had before, right before you jump right back into a pretty intense fight. So they start like battling. And again, Doctor Strange doesn't have magic really of his own. He has, you know, what would have been just like tricks before. Like he has a magical apple tree that he, you know, takes a bite out of and throws at the guy. So the like tree grows up around him and starts attacking him. It's interesting to see Doctor Strange having to to battle with these magical things that don't really work all that well. 
even with having 99% less power than he used to against his arch nemesis, who is fully powered, he's standing his own against him. And then he uses this cloak thing, which is, if you remember, he used to have that red cloak that would move around him mm-hmm. and was an extension of his will, but that thing's dead. So he has this other cloak that he uses to form like some armor around him to protect him from like the magical blast the guy is sending him. But the cloak doesn't really work that well, and it won't let him out of the cloak. And it actually transports him to this like realm of nightmares where some of his old arch nemesis is sizzizzes. I don't know how many isses there are in that. He's like trapped in the realm of nightmares now where it's all very dreamlike and everything like gravity doesn't really work. There's no real plane of orientation to set yourself on. All of his rogues gallery is coming together to come after him. (laughs) It was really dark and disturbing. The part in the beginning with the suffering creature that he created was really horrifying. That thing is so... I thought the fights were really good. I liked the writing. I like where this is going. All of his rogues gallery that you're seeing, some of them, they're cheesy in a lot of ways, but they're terrifying because they still have their powers. Yes. Because they didn't waste their time fighting the Empirical. (laughs) So they're being selfish dickbags is kind of (laughs) to their benefit here because they didn't have to sacrifice any of their magic to defeat the Empirical. I want to see Blood in the Aether. I want to see the fallout of what happened when magic goes away. Yes. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, that's the thing. It's like covering Doctor Strange has been something that I've really enjoyed because I, I don't really like pay attention to him very much when I was younger. And so getting into it now, it's just the artwork's amazing. The stories are great. I like the humor that they throw in there. I mean, there's just constantly some sort of thing that's like making you laugh and shit. I mean, even like in the end when it's like when Nightmare steals him away, like Mordo's sitting there going, no, you, you can't take him. This is mine. <laughs> like, he really is a loser. <laughs> that's nice how Jason. And Aaron is able to change the mood of what he's writing because, you know, if you stick with one mood, it loses its, its impact. You know, if you're just strictly horrifying knives to the eye battles for 25 pages, by page 12, it doesn't have any impact anymore. But when you throw in a joke or kind of change it, you can then go right back to it and still have that impact. It's very nice writing. Masterful storytelling. I never really did think that I was going to be like this huge Doctor Strange fan, but now it's like I look forward to every time I see one of his titles pop up. When I was a kid, I didn't really read Doctor Strange either. I would pick up comics from the, you know, the 25 cent bin kind of out of sequence. And there was this run on Hulk where Hulk is like trapped in this dimension that like Doctor Strange sent him to that's a total like acid trip thing that he's wandering through that I remember because I I read that story arc. Like I liked it. And then I went and like found the rest of the issues to piece it all together. But it was it was a drug field filled nightmare. (laughs) You know, it was very hard to understand when you're like eight. But it was it was interesting. (laughs) This run of Doctor Strange has just been a master class in what to do. Absolutely. I gave it four and a half knives to the eye. Awesome. I gave it four and a half hipster druids. It's horror, then it's suspense, then it's funny, then it's horror, then it's suspense. It just throws you through a loop the entire way. It was great. We are still in the world of Marvel. We've got Death of X number one, written by Jeff Meyer and Charles Soleil. Art by Aaron Cooter. Colors by Maury Hollowell. We got the return of your favorite X-Man. We got gold balls in oh, here. Oh, God. Fucking gold balls. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the whole time where he's like, uh, guys, should I really be along on this mission? I'm. This seems a little above my pay grade here. Yeah, seriously. It's like <laughs> even gold balls knows how lame he is. Yeah. And what is up with Cyclops and that new fucking uniform? It's like... 
Because in this one, it's kind of an interesting one involving the X-Men and the Inhumans. What's happening is that there's this big cloud of Terrigen mist that's forming around the city in Japan, uh, Matsumoto, Japan. And so the Inhumans are obviously there waiting for their... Uh, their people to spring up from the Terrigen Mist, and they're like kind of like looking over the city. And the city's been evacuated. There's about 200,000 people left, so they're expecting 10, 20 Inhumans out of it. So they're like sitting there and they're waiting for this cloud of mist to, to roll through and whatnot. I thought it was interesting how they were saying that, like at the beginning of the Terrigen Mist, like everyone would leave the city. And it's true that some people did leave the city this time, but more people actually came to to go to the Terrigen Mist cloud. So they're kind of like winning like the PR battle. You know, superpowers are nice. <laughs> yeah, although in human cocoons are pretty disgusting, so... We have this split scene that's going on where the Inhumans are waiting for their people to pop up, and then the X-Men are also there, and what they're doing is they're looking for one of their members... It's Madrox, uh, the the guy who can split into different people. Madrox is there. They're looking for him. They've lost contact with him. They don't know what's going on. So they're coming up this cloud of Terrigen mist the entire time. And so they're going in and they, they go into this lab and, you know, they see there's like blood outside and there's blood on the walls. And they go in and they find this corpse of this lady that's all covered in blood and also covered in like boils, like massive giant boils and like... Yeah, almost looks like the body's been like irradiated to a certain extent. That's what it reminded me of. It definitely gave the impression of irradiation. They find that. And so then they're like, okay, there's something else around here. They, they're wanting to find what's doing that. In the meantime, Hydra decides that they're going to attack in the middle of the city of Japan as the new Inhumans are popping up just taking a, uh, a shot at them while they're weak. Those guys in the Hydra armor, that's so much better than their goofy green uniforms they oh, used to have. Oh, yes, absolutely. Looks pretty badass. Like, that's one thing. It's like when they showed up, it's like, what are these, like, the, the special forces Hydra? Because these guys don't look like the lame ones. So nice redesign there. They get ready to fight it out with Hydra, the Inhumans do. And then Hydra's like, oh, well, we got some things here, too. And they have these big, giant, freaking gunships that are, like, loaded to the guilds with Hydra people. <laughs> I like that, where they're like, there's like five of us and only three battleships. We've got him outnumbered. Yeah. Oh, that was hilarious. <laughs> Flashback to the X-Men, and then they find Madrox, and there's just like a million dead Madroxes laying around. Yeah, all covered in boils and lesions, and they look messed up. So they find the real one, and he's still alive, and he tells them that basically, because they're asking him, like, who did this to you? Who did this to you? Because the entire time they're ensuing, something did it. And he says that the Terrigen Mist did it, and then he dies, right? So then the X-Men go back and find the research that these scientists had been doing on the Terrigen Mist, and they find out it can actually harm X-Men. And then right as that happens, Cyclops, is, he's been, like, coughing and stuff and, like, feeling kind of weird. Yeah, Cyclops and Gold Balls are affected by the Terrigen yes, Mist. please kill Gold Balls. Fucking Gold please Balls. Please kill Gold Balls. <laughs> Come on. Cyclops I'm good with. Gold Balls, not so much. Although they do say when they have people from the future come that they're really excited to meet Gold Balls because he's one of the greatest, you know, mutant heroes of all time. So how the fuck they're going to have that happen, yeah, I don't know. That, but. That'll be some masterful <laughs> storytelling right there. Fuck. Take this lame-ass superhero and fucking turn him into something cool. The Inhumans are losing their fight pretty bad because basically all the Hydra people are flying and they have guns and stuff like that and they've only got one flyer. So they're getting their ass kicked pretty bad and then all of a sudden one of one of cocoons opens up. Earlier on you saw this guy, he's like punk rocker basically. It's like he's got like leather jacket and blue hair. Mohawk, little padlock <laughs> necklace. Yeah, yeah, pretty much Japanese punk. So 
he comes out and he blasts out this huge energy thing and it turns out that it's he basically like hypnotizes people and so he's stopped all the hydra folks and that's his new power and so they start talking with him welcome into the fold and whatnot at this point as they're welcoming this new member into their fold you know cyclops gets back up and he says that he basically thinks that terrigen mists are harmful to mutants and they've been lying to them all along feels like basically since the inhumans released the terrigen mists on the world that they basically declared war on mutant kind it's a funny ending scene where as as the inhumans are talking with their new person and scott giving his soliloquy they end with both of their faces and saying we protect our own i think i'm interested in the plot on this one Artwork looks fine, but even though there's some goofy-ass costume designs... There's some goofy comic book costumes, but there's some good Hydra costumes. A little bit of comic book face going on. Yeah, a little bit of comic book face, but it's not so bad. Didn't like the design of Cyclops' suit. It was just kind of like... But like you said, the Hydra guys looked fucking amazing. Artwork was pretty good. I'm not too disappointed with that, really. Actually, I I enjoyed it pretty well. Plotline is interesting to me. This issue just really didn't do much for me overall. Like, I felt like it was kind of a weak start. I felt like this was a decent telling of a story that should have been told like a year and a half ago or two years ago. Because we've been dealing with the fact that Terrigen Mists hurt mutants for a while now in the Marvel Universe. And now it's like they're going back to tell you the story Mm -hmm. of that. I already know that mutants had to evacuate the Earth for the most part. And it feels like this is telling me a story that doesn't really that if they told it at the right time would have been really interesting but now i don't know what the points necessarily of it is it was yeah. all right it was competently yeah. told the way they cut back and forth between the inhumans and the x-men you know and then both ending the terrigen mist brings life to the inhumans and death to mutants when there's both end with that panel of we protect our own like you can see why both sides are going to fight each other i mean it feels a little bit like a setup What I've always said about this Terrigen Mist thing is like this is a way for them to clear out the X-Men that they sold the movie rights for (laughs) to bring in the Inhumans who they're setting up for like their Marvel movies. A lot of this is like, to me, feels like housekeeping on Marvel's part. Yeah, It's not horrible. I mean, if you like the X-Men or if you like the Inhumans, you're probably going to find things you like. I just felt like it was kind of like right on the back of Civil War was kind of a bad choice to go into another Civil War-esque. I really think this story is out of time. And they've been saying how they've been wanting to tell this story for a while. Like the time to tell it, I think, has passed a little bit. just doesn't make all that much sense to tell it right now. I think I'm going to give it three gold balls. (laughs) I will give it three and a half, we protect our own. There you go. In Civil War, you can make really good arguments for both sides, and both sides here have a good argument, but there's no question about it. It's like, of course you don't want your people to be murdered, and of course you want your people to live. Like, yeah. it's not... It's conflict, but there's no no ambiguity to it. It's like, you have all your X-Men action figures, your buddy has all his inhuman action figures, you kind of dump them out slam and... Slam them together. <laughs> slam them together. <laughs> Alright, let's get out of Marvel for a little bit, Ryan. Let's go over to DC, over to the island. So we've got Green Arrow number 8 from DC Comic, Island of Scars Part 1, written by Benjamin Percy, art by Otto Schmidt. I really like the new Green Arrow run. I think it's really interesting. This one, Ollie is on the island where he originally became Green Arrow again when he fought the, like, the burned people that were kidnapping people at the end of that fight. The like oil refinery kind of ship they were on exploded and he ended up back on the island, which is kind of a contrived a little bit way to get him back on the island. It's kind of interesting still. 
So he's doing his survival thing where, like, bears are chasing him through the woods, and he's running around with his bow trying to survive on this island. And everyone who was with him is also kind of on the island as well. His special forces guy that he knew is also on the island, and Dinah is on the island as well. Black Canary is there. I thought there, there's a panel of her coming out of the water where he sees her as, like, a mirage. Is just Dude, doesn't that remind you of, like, that scene from uh, Bo Derek and she's, like, running down the beach? Like, it's, it's yeah, absolutely. It's, it reminded me exactly of it. It's really well done, like, full-page panel, and it, she looks amazing. Or, like, the James Bond movies where the Bond girl comes out of the water, and then the recent one, it's Daniel Craig who does oh, the same true. thing. Oh, yeah. yeah, the way they have her, like, lit there is just is so awesome. And, like, Ollie is kind of, like, on his knees, like, in front of her. Like, it's, it's really... Really yes. good-looking panels. Ollie was fighting this bear that he gets away from, which the bear will become kind of important later on. Dinah is like, look, yeah, we're trapped on this desert island, and we need to get off. With the kind of lives we lead, this is the closest we're ever going to have to a vacation, so let, let's enjoy it. Let's run around in the water naked and have sex on the beach. And I just got chased by a bear. <laughs> you know, let's eat- fuck. <laughs> Pretty much, their adrenaline's going, it's time for some superhero fucking on the beach, basically. So they're, they're making the best of it they can. They start talking, like when they say Island of Scars, right? So they start talking a little bit about all the scars that they have. She's like touching his back and there's scars on it. And he talks about how, you know, the first scar he got when he was a kid, he like off his bike and, you know, his dad gave him the kind of like the Batman speech. Like, you know, it's not how often we fall down, it's how often we get up, that kind of stuff. And Dinah's like, well, I wasn't a rich kid who fell off brand new 10 speed i have scars too they're nothing i'm proud of because he like is pointing to some like scars on her arm which i don't know what those are i don't know if those are maybe from iv drug use or her cutting herself i don't know what that scar is from but she doesn't really like him touching it and commenting on it she doesn't really have anything to want to do with it they kind of see the campground of the guy the special forces guy that was with them who got attacked by this bear earlier on, the same bear that was chasing Ollie. And you find out the bear is actually like a mecha bear. Like, it's like a robot bear that attacks him and takes him to this, like, secret base that's on the island where there's an underground lair and all kinds of stuff. This one looks to me like it's going to be pretty interesting. I really like seeing the two of them together. They go together really well. Their interplay with their relationship where they're really into each other. You know, Dinah doesn't let him calls him on his shit basically all the time when he starts getting kind of full of himself for being like this you know rich philanthropist she's like you're not that great (laughs) there's cool mecha bears for them to fight there's all kinds of island stuff i enjoyed this i thought it was pretty cool i liked when he made the list of his priorities you know his first priority was to kill the guy who had betrayed him and she's like well you're not a murderer and she like crosses out kill on it and she's like and you idiot your first priority is get off the (laughs) island You know, like, these are all great goals, but you can't do any of it while you're trapped here. So let's focus on that. And I think think the art on this really deserves a lot of credit. Art here from Otto Schmidt is fantastic. It looked beautiful. And again, he did it all. Inks, pencils, colors, all of it. It It's all his work. Glad I went back to this one and brought you guys back in a little bit after the last arc. I feel the same way as you do. I've actually been really enjoying this run. It's another superhero that I never really paid a whole hell of a lot of attention to, but I'm kind of glad that we're going back into it because I I do enjoy uh, the stories that they're, they're telling. I totally agree with you with the artwork. It's like, not only is the artwork itself, but I also like the aspects that he uses, the positioning how the characters are staged up and stuff like that. It, it really makes it. Varied panel composition, yeah. Yeah, camera it's angles. just everything that you want. And then with the story, I'm normally not the big love plot thing 
you know, when it comes to comic books and stuff like that, it, it usually feels contrived. In this particular case, like, you can really just, like, they make you feel the fucking, the relationship. And that's what I really, actually, it's probably my favorite part about this is the interplay between them. I don't know, it's just really well told. That's one thing that's in the previous New 52 for Green Arrow, is they split up a lot of classic pairings, like Superman and Lois Lane got split up, Black Canary and Green Arrow got split up. And at the end of, like, issue one for this, Black Canary's back, and she's like, it's about time. And you're like, goddamn right it is. Like, they go so well together. Because they do love each other, but it's not all lovey-dovey. Each of them thinks the other is perfect. It's like they're always sparring with each other. it's a strained relationship in in a way. Yeah, which is much more interesting to me. Absolutely. I will give this four and a half Mecha Bears. Oh, you fucker! (laughs) (laughs) Let's see here. I'm going to give it four Black Canaries on the beach. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Put it back on the quiver, buddy. My arrow's already shot. <laughs> Quick on uh, the draw. <laughs> oh, we're horrible. Back over to Marvel. A little more PG. Oh, it's definitely PG time with this one. <laughs> Actually, this one, I, I really enjoyed this one. Oh, I love this one. This was the third book that I almost made my pick of the week. We got Champions number one. Marvel Cups written by Mark Wade, Pencils by Umberto Ramos. Inks by Victor Olblaza. Colors by Edgar Delgado. We start off in Champions number one here, which I I love the pairing on it, too. Just who they came up with. I really have felt like Miss Marvel is kind of like this generation's Captain America. That she's their, like, moral strength. Yes. And I think that this really shows that. Definitely. Kamala's back at her folks' house having dinner, and she's talking about how she's taking a little time off because, you know, her dad's, like, making remarks of how, like, you know, hey, you're actually home, you know, and stuff like that. And she's like, yeah, I'm taking a little time off. (laughs) From extracurricular activities? Yeah. They flash backwards to the fight that breaks out with the Avengers versus the Wrecking Crew. And as they're in this fight, you know, everybody starts like the bystanders start bitching them out. We take your, you know, take your superhero fights out of our city. Miss Marvel gets in an argument with Captain America. Falcon edition. (laughs) So she ends up arguing because she's like, you know, they're right. You know, we go through, we destroy the city and nobody, nobody fixes it. Won't someone think of the taco trucks? (laughs) Oh, God, that was hilarious. You fucking wrecked this place and everyone's life is, like, ruined now. Like, how are ordinary people supposed to, like, go to work? Yeah, exactly. How are we going to make this right? How are people going to get tacos? Because I'd be pretty pissed off if a taco truck got destroyed. So she ends up quitting. She's sick of the Avengers. She ends up quitting, and then she's back at home, and you can tell she's missing it because she keeps on looking at her costume, sitting crumpled up in the corner. So she ends up hitting up Spider-Man and... Nova. Nova, thank you. Really good use of texting, actually. Yeah, actually, that was... In the, the panels. This whole... This is one of the things that I really liked about this, is that they're bringing in so many modern elements that are... I mean, we're starting to see them more, but, like, they're real good usage of technology and showing how things happened. And so one of them is they're texting back and forth for their meeting. They all agree to meet up, and then they get together, and... Spidey and and Nova are expecting her to, like, try and, like, twist their arm to get back into the Avengers. And she's like, no, I quit the Avengers. Like, record scratch? Like, what? Yeah. Yeah, She's talking about how we can be a great team on ourselves. We don't need to be part of the Avengers. And we can stand up for what's right. And so then they end up meeting up with Cho, who is wrecking through a mine 
had had a collapse. And so there were people that were trapped underneath there. He's underground, like knocking his way to the mine. And then they all show up and, you know, using teamwork, snatch these miners out of the mine. And then that's when they start talking with Cho about how they're forming this new team and they want to do things differently. As they're still doing that, they go and they Vision's house, which I, that part I really wasn't expecting. <laughs> I thought that was really cool. <laughs> I, I did too, actually. It was just funny to actually see it, though, because they're trying to form a team that's not the Avengers, all of them being former Avengers. They're <laughs> just getting the Junior Avengers together, basically. Yeah, and who answers the door but Vision himself? <laughs> and they're like, awkward. <laughs> They get Viv and they get her on the team. It was kind of funny how he, how uh, they inter- introduced her because Cho's like been playing like online games with her and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> He's basically her raid buddy from like World of Warcraft or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so they all get yeah. together and they're talking about Viv's abilities with you know with her super super badass computer processors and stuff like that and how she could scan the net for like problems Cho's trying to show off her abilities she like scans it and like oh this and she's basically finding uh, a text message from these girls that are it's obviously like a human trafficking operation yeah shit got real real dark real fast that was the funny thing because before it's like you've got this superhero team origin thing and they're talking about how they're going to do everything the right way and and then all of a sudden all these girls half naked and with clown makeup on like chained up and stuff so this is their first mission they go and they basically just light up the guys who have these girls Pagliacci the clown he's he's oh is that who that is yeah I hadn't ran into him before I've never seen him before either I just I know the opera so I recognize the name this clown that I don't know about. <laughs> this clown. <laughs> this clown. This fucking clown. So they basically start. They're a good team. It never hurts when you have the Hulk on your side. They basically just slam everybody. Pagliacci hits his button, which drops the... It's like his insurance policy. It's like this big Connex trailer that has these girls, and it's like suspended over the water. He hits this button. It snaps the chain, and they get dropped into the water. Part here where Spider-Man webs it reminds me so much of the scene with Gwen Stacy on the bridge. Because he webs it, and he's like, I got it, and then there's the snap where it's too heavy for him, basically. I thought that was a nice little callback to that. So the Connex falls into the water, and it's sinking, and they show this horrible, terrifying-looking picture of the girls, like... Really terrifying. Yeah, panicking, and, like, Viv is, like, gone insubstantial, and, like, is poking through, and she's like, don't worry, the Hulk has to uh, get to the bottom to get the proper leverage to uh, lift the container. Another thing that I liked is that they're actually paying attention to the laws of physics. Which, I mean, how horrifying is that, that this thing has to sink to the bottom while you're drowning inside of it before the Hulk can, you know, push it up? Yeah, absolutely. For me, that made the scene a lot more intense because it's like, yeah, thinking about that exact same thing. They rip open the container, they get the girls out. Well, it turns out that one of them's dead in there, and Biv says that she's beyond saving. So at this point, Cho freaks out slams him into the wall, which I imagine couldn't be a good thing. But they, Yeah, because as far as I know, he's just a normal human, so he's fucked yeah. up at this point. They show this great scene. Now, this set of panels right here was just, this was brilliant. This is what almost made it my pick of the week. Yes, so they show all these people, everybody's got their cell phones out, and they're recording this, and people are telling him, kick this guy's ass, kill him, you know, make him pay. Everybody's telling Cho to finish him. He gets stopped by Miss Marvel, And she's like, you know, that's not our job. She's like, I'm not trying to give a speech about superheroes. This isn't how it should be done. You know, this should be done with the right way. 
and that's what we're here to do. And she talks about unarmed kids getting hit with lethal firepower and all this. Like, so she's basically saying, like, we're here to do this the right way. When she turns to their camera and talking, I feel like she's breaking the fourth wall and directly addressing inequality and police violence and all these things that are happening. The things that are going on in the world right now that we're all concerned with in one way, shape, or form. Yeah, they basically address all that right there. And so, once again, in a great show of modern technology, they're showing all these people that are, uh, you know, basically tweeting and dropping hashtags, champions. That was great. Giving them their back and stuff. Honestly, like, this was the best modern superhero story I think I've read. I love the fuck out of this. Like, And the funny thing was, like, at first, Me too. I was not... I wasn't sure if I was going to dig it or not. I like Cho. I like. Yeah, but it's like just because you have all your favorite parts together, if the person doesn't know how to write them, doesn't mean it's going to be well. But he uses them all to really great effect. Yeah, I mean, this isn't just Junior Avengers. And I think that's what I think that's what I was going into it assuming is that it was going to be Junior Avengers and lame stopping bicycle thieves and like that kind of bullshit you know exactly but it's totally not is this was just a great first run reminds me of like teen titans like that's how good it is you know yeah this i love this shit this was fucking awesome (laughs) that last page where she gives her speech where she talks to the camera and she's talking about uh uh, we have to start enforcing justice without using unjust force i was like damn that that's something to think on that's to chew on that you know for a second yeah exactly and then where they show all of the younger heroes seeing her message so you've got like the new iron man or iron woman iron girl i don't know what they're gonna call her but you have, you know, her, and then you've got, like, the Wasp, and you've got uh, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Mm. You've got, you know, all these young Cyclops, like, all these people hearing it who are going to, I'm guessing, join. That's Yeah, that's what it sounded like. This was something special. I like that this is an outgrowth from Civil War. This is kind of a, a natural consequence of Civil War, that what happen, is happening in Civil War, that these characters are looking in horror at what the older generation is doing. They're fighting each other. They're destroying things. They're not dicking around to clean up and help people afterwards. They just, they're there for the punching. It's very timely. I'm going to rate this as I'm giving it five hashtag champions. I will give it four and a half. Start enforcing justice without unjust force. Such a pleasant surprise. And I really just did not think it was going to, I was going to love it. And I went, I'd be on. I, I didn't even either. Marvel has launched a lot of these books we're reviewing this week are part of the Marvel Now, like Jessica Jones, Champions, we'll get to Cage in a minute. You know, these are all part of their relaunch. And so far, I've been pretty happy with most of them. Not all of them, but most of them. Guns a-blazing. So we're going over to DC for a minute, over to Batman number 8 from DC Comics, Night of the Monster Man Part 4, written by Steve Orlando, art by Riley Rosmo, colors by Ivan Placencia. So if you've been reading Night of the Monster Man, you know exactly what you're going to get here, which is people fighting monsters. Like, I kind of feel like the story is a little bit hitting like a one note kind of thing. Like, there are interesting things happen, but I feel like this has went on maybe one issue too much a little bit. They're battling monsters. So the big thing that happens in here, Batman takes down the big dragon thing using his oil engine from his motorcycle to shock it somehow. That was kind of weird. <laughs> he takes it down, but he does. And then... The cave where you've seen Spoiler and Orphan, they manage to light those flares and drive away the mold that's driving everyone crazy. 
So a lot of the threats are kind of ending their run here. Gotham Girl and Nightwing have shown up in their monster forms, and they're fighting, you know, Batgirl and Batman. And the one thing that I thought was kind of cool that I hadn't seen before is where Batman uses Clayface to turn into a suit of armor for him. I've never seen that before. I never would have thought of it myself. It's pretty cool. So he's fighting Gotham Girl, basically teamed up with Clayface. Duke has figured out how to neutralize the nanites that are in them by basically making new nanites to override them. So he goes to inject her with it while she's fighting Batman, shoots her in the leg, and she turns back basically into Claire. The one thing that I thought was kind of interesting is I don't know if this is one of the monster men when they're in the cave and all the mold that they've turned turns into this like black sludge and then goes and forms into this other monster thing. I don't know what that is. It looks terrifying, but I don't understand what it is. I thought that was a little unclear. Batwoman and Nightwing are like fighting in the air. Nightwing is this kind of like bird-bat combination thing. So he and Batwoman are fighting and Nightwing basically drops her. So she's like in free fall. And she's calling everyone to basically, while she's falling, telling them what the plan is, which I'm assuming is going to be somebody's going to catch me. We're going to go do all this stuff. So she even in her moment of imminent death, she kind of trusts in the team that she's trained here to to rescue her. And she's still just like Batman, always thinking, always got a plan. It was all right. If you like Night of the Monster Men, you're going to get exactly what you've gotten before. If you didn't like Night of the Monster Men, there's not going to be anything new in here. Because all of these, even though they're happening over multiple DC books, they're all written by the same, and art by the same people. So they're essentially just one long story, which I think they're doing to give those creative teams a break because they come out every two weeks, right? So that's really hard to keep up with that production schedule. But if you throw this event in here, rather than making it its own, like, standalone graphic novel, it gives them time to pump out the next art. Like, you got to do tricks like that when you're doing every two weeks. And I feel that's, not that this is bad, but I think that that's definitely the purpose of this going across all these different books. I ended up giving it three and a half falling Batwomen. Heading back over to Marvel Comics for Cage number one from Marvel Comics, written by Gendi uh, Tartakovsky. Probably not saying that right. Pencils by the same person. <laughs> I'm not going to try and say it again. <laughs> Inks by Stephen Stefano, Colors by Scott Wills. So that writer and artist you may recognize from a lot of Cartoon Network yep. shows. So if you like, like the one that I can think of that I watched is Dexter's Laboratory. Yes. He also did uh, Samurai Jack, I think. She reminds me a lot of Samurai Jack. Yes, it's very Samurai (laughs) Jack-ish. So this one is basically uh, Luke Cage in Cartoon Network, Samurai Jack, Dexter's Laboratory art style. It basically in the 70s being a a bad mother. (laughs) So he's basically, there's this gang of like bank robbers on like roller skates. Oh, that was So (laughs) real 70s stuff. Oh, Um, I love that. I I seriously started laughing so hard when I saw those guys. (laughs) This is basically the 70s version of Luke Cage. So if you like that kind of stuff, you're probably going to like this. I was not a big fan of it. The artwork did not work for me. I thought the writing was okay, but I'm not that interested in a book set in the past. I thought it was interesting and a nice little 70s take on it, but I was not overall thrilled with it. I enjoyed the story enough. As much as I'm a fan of uh, the artist's work before, it just wasn't doing it for me this time. I did enjoy 70s action, you know, dig it. Dig it, all the open, you know, hairy chest with the medallions and the, you know, people, the disco roller skates and like, that stuff was fun. Yes, it definitely was. I think if you like that kind of stuff, you're going to like this, but it's it's just not for me, yeah. I think. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I think like this one, it's it just depends on what you like. It's very goofy. It's fun. It's not really my kind of 
thing. Like I, I would almost say if you're, if you're like a kid, you would probably really like this, but I don't know if kids would get all the 70s yeah, stuff. That's so that's kind of <laughs> where I don't know who this is for. You could give this to <laughs> someone who kind of likes that stuff. They would enjoy it. I, I was not a big fan. I don't, I don't really have that much to say about it. I was not that impressed yeah, by it. That's kind of how I feel, too. <laughs> I think I will give it two and a half. Can you dig it? And I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give it two and a half, sticking it to the man. Because <laughs> the bankrollers just stuck it to the man. I love that. The opening panels, I was amused by. But once they got to the fight with like the, the gang that was after him, I, it lost me there. I didn't find that interesting at all. So those were the books we read this week. To check out our weekly pull list and other nerd shenanigans, go check out fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page, Four Color Nerds. You can follow us on Twitter or at Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music. On Stitcher. On SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. We also have a second podcast for PC gaming for the cheap and broke. <laughs> Four Color Nerds Broke Gaming. Make sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. And make sure to come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading, nerds. Boom. Yay. Boom.